Hello! And welcome to the Michael Clayton episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I have to say, I remembered not liking Michael Clayton when I first saw it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. And we are here with one of the world's biggest Michael Clayton stands, Mr. Peter Kafka of Fox Media. Hello. I will accept that title. <laughs> Peter, do you remember the first time you saw Michael Clayton? Was it in the theaters when it came out? Yep. It was in the uh, Cobble Hill Theater off of Court Street, and I was by myself and uh, feeling a lot of anguish about the world, and that, that movie just tapped right into it. And you came out feeling even more anguish about the world. More anguish and also uh, remarking on what a very good New York movie is. We can get into that later. Ooh, but yeah, it got ooh, me right I away. Love, I love the idea of this as a New York movie. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about Michael Clayton, the George Clooney vehicle from when did it come out? 2007. 2007, just before he became a completely silver fox. And some sparkling dialogue, some great direction, all of that coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Okay, Peter, we may as well start with New York, the center of big law. The All of these large anonymous law firms and... I don't know. You, do, do you hang out with lawyers? Do you think there's any verisimilitude here? Well, I, you know, I do think that, that if I knew more about the legal profession and big law, I might like this movie less. The fact that I'm imagining that this is what big lawyers are actually doing uh, sort of helps. But lots of other elements I do recognize. I do recognize all sorts of parts of New York and who lives where, how they live, how unless you are the main principle of the law firm. Everyone lives in some kind of cramped housing. And uh, there's a bunch of journalism in there, which is not really key to it, but it's in the opening scene. And I, I do know what it's like to to fish for a scoop and get shut down by by someone smarter and more powerful than you. And I certainly know what it's like to uh, be worried about your place in the professional tiers and wondering what happens to you next, what happens to you at a certain age if you haven't gotten to where you want to go, what happens if your company gets sold, will you still have a place in that company? All that, all of that really gets to me. Plus, it's George Clooney doing a 1970s style sort of conspiracy story. It's great. I love it. So, wow, you've just like ticked off an amazing list of things there, which I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And like just literally in the past 90 seconds. I think I like this movie more already. Oh, it's also a, it's also a giant critique of, uh, from the get-go of modern capitalism, uh, which is like <laughs> the opening line. So what's Describe. the opening line and how does it critique modern capitalism? You're hearing the, the guy who you later find out is, is the genius but also insane lawyer who is sort of the other center of the movie describing this dream slash fantasy slash nightmare he's had, this moment of clarity where he realizes he's in Times Square and it ends with him saying, I'm Basically, that that he is not going into the offices of this giant law firm every day, but he's being excreted out of it, working on behalf of. Uh, so the important line here is he says, "I'm coated in a patina of shit," uh, and he's describing being sort of the ass end of capitalism. And I had the most stunning moment of clarity. I, 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 I realized, Michael, that I had emerged not through the doors of Kenner, Bach, and Ladine, not through the portals of our fast and powerful law firm, but 
from the asshole of an organism whose sole function is to excrete the, 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 the poison, the ammo, the defoliant necessary for other, larger, more powerful organisms to destroy the miracle of humanity. And that I had been coated in this patina of shit for the best part of my life. The scent of it and the stain of it would in all likelihood take the rest of my life to undo. And you know what I did? I took a deep cleansing breath and I set that notion aside. I tabled it. I said to myself, as clear as this may be, as potent a feeling as this is, as true a thing as I believe that I have witnessed today, it must wait. It must stand the test of time. And Michael, the time is now. So I should probably put my cards on the table that I really dislike this movie. <laughs> the first, oh, uh, it's going to be great. The first Ooh. time I saw it was two nights ago. And I really, really, really dislike this movie. <laughs> All right, let's go. Well, number one, the romanticization of mental illness. The idea that, oh, someone who's bipolar has schizophrenia, you know, they're not crazy. They're, they're not hurting other people. No, no, they see the truth of the universe. Where No, no, actually, in reality, these mental illnesses are horrible in what they can do to people's lives. And it does not give people an insight into the universe. Also, the irascible genius that, okay, so this guy is stalking a young girl. He is committing like the worst things you can do at work. But no, no, it's okay. It's okay because he's such a good lawyer. That's just getting me started. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the Tom Wilkinson character in that case, because this seems to be a, a locus of, um, well, people have strong feelings. I found him to be, honestly, like little more than the MacGuffin. I guess I'm entirely in the middle between you guys. I don't think that he had any particular insight. I think like the idea that he's excreted out of the office every morning and covered in shit, it's just, you know, I, I, I didn't consider that to be an commentary on modern capitalism, but maybe it is. Certainly there is an element in which modern bankers and lawyers and people in the those kind of white collar, high paid service industries, you know, they are the the assets of the firm. And everyone talks about how the assets of the firm like walk out the door and down the elevators every day. And and so Sidney Pollock as the I guess the the senior partner in the firm, it's clearly up to him to try and keep people happy, but also to make sure that they are producing. I can see, I guess what I can't see is how that character, like the the lawyer who goes off the rails, sheds much light on that dynamic. I mean, look, he is clearly mentally ill. They're clear about that. And I, I'm going to respectfully disagree with that. And I don't think they're romanticizing him. They make it quite clear that he's ill and off the rails. And I also think Felix is right. He's a MacGuffin, right? He kicks the thing off. But I think the other part, he does, he is a truth teller to Michael Clayton often. He says, you know, you basically are are a shell of a person. Uh, he's got a great insult where he says, you live a rich and interesting life, but, you know, you're not really a good lawyer. And and I, I think he's one of the many characters in the movie that are trying to do their job. And a lot of that involves doing unpleasant things. And he's the one who sort of breaks from that at some point. And no, I would not want him representing me. And if I, if he was related to me, I'd want to get him some help. So I agree with Anna there. Anna, what did you think of the movie as a, a commentary on capitalism? Or do you think it is a commentary on capitalism? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I would definitely agree that that is what they are trying to get at. And, and again, I actually think this is another place where the movie really fails because the conceit of the film is that you have this agro-business company that knew that its product you know, could cause cancer, but it continued to produce it 
because it wanted to continue to make money. And when it comes out that, or when this could come out, then the people at the company, the lawyers, start killing people. So in the real world, <laughs> the real scandal is that when you have things like Boeing or with the Ford Pinto, is that people potentially knew that something was going to go wrong. It kills people. They pay a big fine. People might get fired, but they're just perfectly fine. And that's the big scandal of the film. And what this film is, it, it does, especially with the way the film ends, is it, it wraps things up in a nice bow and it makes everybody feel like we live in a world where, okay, the bad guys are getting theirs. And I, to me, I, I just found that very lazy. And it, it also doesn't really say anything interesting. Well, I do think there's supposed to be a lot of ennui with Michael Clayton at the end. He does the heroic thing and the right thing, but he doesn't feel good about it. And he's wasted his life. He's 45. He doesn't have anything to show for. He certainly can't go into law. And yes, they do. They do try to kill people. They kill one person. We're spoiling the whole movie. I guess that's the point of it. But they, their plan is that what they are doing, which is what all these companies do, is they're they're in a six year lawsuit. They're dragging out. They always intend to pay some amount of money, and it's just a matter of we want to pay X, and the plaintiffs' lawyers want this, and we're eventually going to reach some settlement. How long will that take? How much can we drag this out? And before Michael Clayton blows it up, they're going to settle the three billion dollar lawsuit for what six hundred, four hundred million, uh, and they've, they've explained that it's all going to be fine, and that part definitely rings true. I mean, you can look at the, for instance, uh, the NFL players uh, suing the NFL over over concussion-related injuries, and, and the NFL basically got them to settle for basically nothing. And the NFL players can no longer ever sue the NFL for allowing them to damage their brains. And I think that's a pretty clear-eyed look at it. And Michael Clayton is very much a 70s anti-hero, right? I mean, He's charismatic and but, but deeply flawed, and he wins in the end, but at what cost? I think that's that's the vibe they're going for. You said something interesting there, Peter, when you said that like he can't be a lawyer. Are you? Do you read his that the final scene of this movie is is Michael Clayton basically just doing a kind of mic drop and walking away from the whole legal thing? Because I have maybe a possibly Straussian read on this whole thing, which is that. He rescues the law firm and he does the one thing that is good for them. Like, if you think of the power dynamic between the law firm and the company, the, the agribusiness company, UNORTH, the law firm for most of the movie is on the back foot. They've given the gig to Tom Wilkinson, who's crazy, and Tom Wilkinson does a lot of things which are just completely not allowed and illegal and unethical. And that gives UNORTH a lot of leverage over the law firm. And then because of the fear of what UNORTH might be able to do to the law firm and prevent the merger and all of the rest of it, that causes a lot of agita at the highest levels and Sidney Pollock and all the rest of it. And then suddenly at the end, this this wonderful move by Michael Clayton, who's like this cog in the law firm machine, comes in, solves the whole problem for it. Suddenly the company, UNORTH, is on the back foot. The law firm can be like, well, we weren't responsible for them killing anyone. And the law firm is is the great big winner. And Michael Clayton is a hero and he gets like a, a, a promotion and his job back, right? May not get their fees. Yeah, they won't get their fees. He's violated his NDA. <laughs> That he took for $80,000. So that's an issue. But do you think, I mean, the, one of the plot points here is that the reason Kenner Block and whatever the last name is of the law firm is, is, is so desperate to get this deal done is because they're selling themselves to London, to the unnamed English company. Do you think that the, the company that was going to merge with them wants to go ahead with this merger? On those same terms, after after this debacle involving dead lawyers and assassinations comes up, uh, I mean, perhaps <laughs> why not? And honestly, lawyers 
Lawyers always get their fees, you know, they're top of the creditor class when UNorth enters bankruptcy. They'll be fine. Fair enough. I mean, the main thing, right, is that he's not a lawyer. I mean, he's 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 a bag man. He's a, he says over and over, I'm a janitor. I'm a, he's a fixer. I guess he could set up practice somewhere else. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so fucking blind you don't even see what I am? I'm the easiest part of your whole goddamn problem and you're going to kill me? Don't you know who I am? I'm a fixer. I'm a bag man. I do everything from shoplifting housewives to bent congressmen, and you're going to kill me? What do you need, Karen? Lay it on me. You want a carry permit? You want a heads up on an insider trading subpoena? I sold out Arthur for 80 grand and a three-year contract, and you're going to kill me? One of the things that I'm confused about is that he is so enormously valuable at the company and very smart. And they make a big point of the fact that he's not a partner. He's not on a partner track. He doesn't have the clout of the other high-ranking lawyers. But if he's so valuable and he's so smart, wouldn't he have figured out a way to carve himself out some equity if he's not a formal partner? Wouldn't he have more leverage at this point? He's scrambling to get a $75,000 loan shark debt cleared. And the whole point is that he looks very successful, but he's less successful. But they show over and over that he's very, very good at his job and very valuable and all the lawyers depend on him. So you'd think he would be able to lever that into something bigger. And plus, like, if he's, you know, remotely as competent as it seems that he is, like, I'm all understanding why he might want to invest in his fuck up brother's restaurant but like when you invest in your brother's restaurant you invest your money in your brother's restaurant you don't go to a loan shark to borrow the money to invest in your brother's restaurant i mean come on also it's he says it's his walking away money you don't put your walking away money in a restaurant that's a really really bad idea <laughs> yes touche and they do say that he's got a gambling problem right so there's a little bit of a personality there right. that they're looking at but yes it does seem like not the wisest yeah, the gambling problem exists to explain why he doesn't have any money and the divorce and various other things. But there's a bunch of stuff which doesn't make sense in this movie. Top of the list for me is, even if Tom Wilkinson is mentally ill, like, as a lawyer, there's no great secret about what you do when you are in the middle of a lawsuit and you get documents which are germane to the outcome of the case which is that they appear in discovery and you hand them over to the other side and the other side can then take that document and wave it in your face and say look you signed and you knew and all the rest of it and then you have to defend against that right the entire movie seems to be predicated on the idea that the other side doesn't have this document and that alone would be like professional suicide for any lawyer to just like to keep that document secret. Like the idea that Sidney Pollock would like take a look at this document in his office and the first words out of his mouth aren't well, like, why doesn't the other side already have this? You know, it's crazy. That's another issue I kind of have with the film is that there are all of these plot points that are just so artificial and don't make any sense whatsoever. And But the reason they have them there is because they want you at the end of the film, like they, because they start at the beginning and then they come back to the beginning and they want you to be able to be like, oh, it all makes sense now. There's this grand conspiracy and we have figured out the grand conspiracy, which to me fits into this film's worldview, which again, I, I think is so simplistic and honestly just not that interesting. There's all kinds of plot issues. I think they try to explain away the document problem. Tillis at one point says, Oh, yeah, we had a big warehouse fire a few okay. years ago. And so we lost a lot of stuff. Yeah. And But yeah, you'd think the literal smoking gun document they have, they would they would have 
better track of. But like the minute you get, if you're Tom Wilkinson, the minute you get that smoking gun, do you, in great secrecy, take it down to your local copy shop and get a thousand copies made? Or do you just send it to I the think, other side? I, I think the fighting? implication yeah. is that he has already uh, had an episode or two at that point and has gone off right. the rails prior to finding that document or finding that document is part of him going off the rails. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So can we maybe talk about the Tilda Swinton character as well? Let's do, I mean, there is nothing I love in the world more than talking about Tilda Swinton characters. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, I would say that she is the best thing in the film, even though I think her character is very poorly written. I, I think she does a lot with the material. I mean... The film is definitely setting up like she is this calculating, very, they show her from the very beginning performing. She's artificial. They keep showing her like putting her clothing on, like she's putting on a costume. She's rehearsing, she's, she's rehearsing every, her lines. Exactly. And, you know, she's very, very ambitious. They do the thing that all films do when they want to show a woman is ambitious. They have her run on a treadmill. <laughs> and then you have the other woman who is the sweet, angelic farm girl, Anna the farm girl. And, and these these are your two main female characters. <laughs> I'm not sure this movie passes the Bechdel test. Oh, definitely doesn't. <laughs> the Tilda Swinton character, there are moments where I do think that she shows that she's, you know, conflicted or, or at least she's very, very anxious. They show her sweating. They show her in a bathroom just sweating. But I'm just curious what you guys think. What else interesting is there about her character? So I will say that when I, I do remember seeing this movie in the Copyhold Movie Theater and thinking, oh, sh that is not a great female character in a very male movie. And they are sort of, sketching her out as fairly one-dimensional with some nods towards she's got some frailty. But I've seen it many times. And the more I see it, the more sort of empathy I have for her. She, like almost everyone else in this movie, with the exception of like Marty Bach, I think the, the head lawyer, is trying to keep up with the gears and machinery of her business and of capitalism in general. And she's in over her head, as are a lot of folks. And she fails. Um, and, and, you know, eventually she orders the murder of two people. And so it's a movie, so you got to go with it. But I do think, you know, she's not sure when she's ordering the murder if she's done the right thing. She's clearly racked about it. And I, I, I wonder, after noise. having called in a hit on someone, was I doing <laughs> Yeah, it's like, should and, I have and, done that? Should I have? <laughs> I think one of the things that this movie gets wrong in that respect is the way in which white-collar professionals... And indeed, most people who commit crimes, um, you know, beyond like, you know, violent crimes, kind of convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. It's improbable to me that what you would have would be 
uh, an executive. I think she's the general yes. counsel, like the general counsel of a of a Monsanto you know, Monsanto like company, sort of saying to themselves, "Well, you know, it's my job to go and." you know, look after all the legal affairs of this company. And I guess part of my job is to just call in hits on people. Like, that's not how people think. And it's not what people do. And it's not clear what conceivable incentive she would have to do that. She's the general counsel of a major company. Like, at the end of the day, even if they wind up firing her, she will be fine. She thinks she is shielding the company. She thinks she is shielding her boss, who's made, who used to be the general counsel, and she's his protege. His name is on the document. Again, it's a movie. And she s- slips into it, right? Her boss gives her a number of this guy to call if there's ever a problem that might be sort of off books. And she nervously calls him. And that guy sort of, you can tell they have sort of talked around the idea of what they could do. And even when she orders the hit, the, the hitman sort of says, you have to tell me explicitly that you want to do this. Otherwise, I'm not sure. But I thought this might come up. So I did... Uh, find a story. I want to read the lead of the story. The headlines about pig's blood and cockroaches might have grabbed your attention yesterday over the scandal emerging from the unusually <laughs> My from the usually state e-commerce giant eBay <laughs> and goes on to explain that federal prosecutors in Boston have charged six former eBay employees, including the former head of corporate security with criminal cyber stalking and witness tampering after an almost year-long investigation into their effort to destroy the lives of a journalist and her husband. And the point of the story actually is that these guys were all very bad and they shouldn't have done it. But for some reason, Devin Wenig, the, the former CEO of eBay, who clearly did order this, has somehow managed to insulate himself from that. It's not the same as ordering a murder. They didn't, didn't murder anybody. But it is it is going way off the rails. It's bad, it is, but yeah. You know, some, first of all, the CEO of the company shouldn't be doing this. And then in theory, there should be... <laughs> You know, Meg Whitman had a version of this at Hewlett Packard, right? Or was it Carly Fiorina? Not to mention like Wirecard right. and all there, the crazy wh- stuff that they were calling in on FD journalists. Right, where you don't have the next layer down of a check and balance and someone saying, boss, we can't do this, or not enough people saying that. So there's a there's an echo. Right. And people take things into their own hands, they go crazy. So I think that's that's a fair point. And although most people don't send pig's blood to journalists. I feel like that's that's fairly rare yeah. <laughs> for businesses to do. <laughs> I don't know. Mark Benioff had the woman who's now uh, the head of the New York Times technology group detained because she wandered too close to one of his properties at one point. This is before he was saving journalism. I mean, I think you get enough money, enough power. It's I'm always interested in that story where no one will tell you no. Now, the point of the story is that Tilda Swinton character doesn't have that money and power, but she sort of aspires to it. She sees herself in line. And she's, you know, on some level, she is a henchman, right? She's working on behalf of the guy that she's trying to protect. And you know, I think we can agree she makes an error of judgment here. It's a bad call. <laughs> a bad call. Yeah, I, I feel like something she could get disbarred for that, you know, in certain places. Also, I have a question. Yeah. If you take all the effort to make it appear that somebody committed suicide, why then is your next plan to put a car bomb, which is a fairly public thing? Oh, Vita has not. I only have an answer because I did nerd out before this and read some of the Tony Gilroy script for this. And there's a scene in that script where the two assassins are discussing the car bomb, which is not in the movie. And they say, where was this made or where'd you get it from? And they say Russians or Russians trying to look like Albanians. It's as far away from the other thing as we can try to get. And in the movie, they don't spell this out either. But I assume that everyone who sees that Michael Clayton's been blown up in a car bombing assumes that it's a gambling related thing and it's a loan shark. And I think that's their intent is to make it not look like the same thing. That does make sense. But let's go back to the beginning and the bits of it that at least you and I, Peter, can relate to. 
as you say, it's a New York movie, but it's New York at a, at a very specific time. It's before the crash. It's cell phone, but pre-iPhone. Blackberries. Before the crash. Exactly. Like when phones aren't smart, where you still can like disappear. When newspapers have deadlines. And that's like this crazy thing where like at the beginning of the movie, Sitting Bollock is like cool as a cucumber. He's like, you can push me. You can say that you're going to file the story anyway, but I know that you went to press 20 minutes ago, so you're just bluffing, which is a great line. But like maybe what, a year later? A couple would be, years, but yeah. That would yeah, make yeah. no sense. Yeah. No, it's good. And all the tech holds up, I think. I think this movie would work. Yeah, I guess the deadline part wouldn't work. But yeah, there's, you know, their earpieces are not as sleek as an AirPod. But I don't really know that, that introducing an iPhone to this would change it. Everyone is on a phone constantly. There's a great shot of Don Jeffries, the, the Monsanto CEO, and Tilda Swinton, and then like a phalanx of other junior people trailing behind them. They're walking down Sixth Avenue. They're all on their phones, importantly talking. I just loved it. Oh, that was great. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. But yeah, the other thing that New Yorkers will definitely pick up on is, as you say, it's a New York film in that it really divides New York into the swanky residential bits of like the Upper East Side, the very quasi-rural residential bits of Westchester, the very intense business district of Midtown. And then, which I love, like the kind of cool and bohemian and edgy downtown loft living thing, which like, again, like... This was the last conceivable minute that living downtown could have been considered cool and bohemian and edgy. Yeah, my guess is that's actually too late even then. Yeah, 2007? Yeah. <laughs> but but they make a point of showing how unfinished Tom Wilkinson's loft actually is. I mean, it's barely furnished. But there's a great line, again, from, from the Sidney Pollock characters, like, oh, Arthur living downtown in some kind of loft, no doorman, it's a disaster. And I, that part, I do like that part because it shows you like how removed from that world he is. That he doesn't go downtown. He goes from Midtown to Westchester and back. I will say that I will watch Sidney Pollock in absolutely any movie playing absolutely any character. He's just... Yeah, he's good. He always kind of plays the same character. Right? He's kind of the same here as he was in Eyes Wide Shut, you know? Yeah, or, or Tootsie. <laughs> but yeah, he just... He does a fantastic job. He's very smooth. 
Like he's the one who doesn't have any contradictions. You know exactly what he's doing. Everything he does makes sense. He reacts in the way that you think he would react. You know, one of his lawyers goes off the rails. He calls in Michael Clayton to fix the problem because that's what Michael Clayton does. And that bit of he just wants his business, his law firm business to do well. What if Arthur was on to something? What do you mean? On to what? You, North, what if he wasn't crazy? What if he was right? Right about what? That we're on the wrong side? Wrong side, wrong way, everything, all of it. This is news. This case reeked from day one. Fifteen years in, I got to tell you how we pay the rent. But what would they do? What would they do if he went public? What would they do? Are you fucking soft? They're doing it. We don't straighten the settlement out in the next 24 hours. They're going to withhold $9 million in fees. Then they're going to pull out the video of Arthur doing his flash dance in Milwaukee. They're going to sue us for legal malpractice. Except there won't be anything from the win because by then the merger with London will be dead. We'll be selling off the goddamn furniture. That is the sort of like capitalist heart of this movie that makes sense, right? Yeah, and he's engineering his exit too. That's a big point, right? He's getting out. He's selling the company, which, which freaks out everybody else in the law firm. Freaks out Michael Clayton. It freaks out Michael Clayton's assistant. She's like... We're going to be okay, right? There's a lot. And Michael Clayton is freaked out. He says, you know, once you sell the company, you're out. And then I got to work with your guy, Barry, who I hate, but hates me. I'm, I'm screwed once you leave. They're very specific about that. That bit, I think, is unrealistic. That kind of considers this as a typical M&A deal where, like, you have a company which is being sold to another company and then a new company takes over and then they're in charge and they're going to implement all of their protocols and management structures and expense reporting and everything and you just need to do what they do because you've sold your and in return for selling your company to that other company you get lots of cash and then you are rich and then you can you know retire rich and that's how most mergers work and that is not how law firm mergers work you don't think there'll be redundancies and power struggles with london i i think there will be few and in any case like there's almost never any like significant cash changing hands in these things it's all just like well we can realize some economies to scale but ultimately the merger is just like bringing more and more lawyers together to do what lawyers do and they still wind up you know making the same amount per partner and it's not like you're handing over a bunch of cash for any assets other than the lawyers themselves you need the lawyers to stay on I will defer to your knowledge of, of law firm M&A, but the idea of the company's changing hands, there's going to be a new boss, the new boss will want to do things a different way with different people, will I be one of those people, that part is very real. Yeah. And I do think that that's also something that I think this film is probably getting at a little bit too, is this kind of like, I guess, late 2000s masculinity crisis of this man and these men who work in these industries and they're in like they, everybody keeps asking Michael Clayton who are you you know who are you that says frequently throughout the film and you can tell there's this idea that you know nothing they do matters that at the end of the day this thing is just going to be sold to this other thing and and I think that is what fundamentally the film is also trying to get at and I, and I do think this film is very much about men and it's about like middle-aged men, you know, with like one divorce behind them who are halfway up a company making perfectly good money, but with no real future. Like the the CV of Michael Clayton, where he like starts as a working working on for the, I think it's in New York State. It's the Queens DA. <laughs> the Queens DA. There you go. ADA in Queens. So he's prosecuting people in like an outer borough and then he moves into private practice where presumably he makes a lot more money. But he carves out this niche for himself as basically being like the cop whisperer and the guy who can get things done. 
And as you say, he says he's a janitor. He's a very well-paid janitor, but it's clear that he doesn't have what you might consider to be like a career trajectory. And everyone's like, don't even think about going back to being a lawyer because that's just not going to work out for you. And so he has, he sees no future for his life. And that sort of white collar, dead behind the eyes thing is a large part of this movie because there's clearly an implication that that is what drives Tom Wilkinson over the edge into madness as well, right? He's like, I've been doing nothing but this case for the past six years and I've lost my soul in doing so. I have become Shiva, god of death. He's telling a story about how uh, Artie Block comes to celebrate when they hit 30,000 billable hours and then they go out whoring. And, and yes, it's a very male movie and it's very much about sort of that midlife crisis. I mean, I, I'm, and I don't want to get on the couch here, but those kind of movies always, always get me. So um, <laughs> it may, it most certainly is one of the reasons I really respond to this film. I'm letting it all hang out here on the Slate Money Movies podcast. So is it a good movie? I mean, we agree that it has plot holes. I think it is fine to have plot holes. Like, it's perfectly okay to have a good movie with plot holes. I think that the dialogue sparkles. I think the performances are excellent. You know, George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Sidney Pollock, they all just turn in really good performances. And in terms of just everything else, the cinematography, the direction, that kind of stuff, it seems good, right? I Well, I've already said I, I, I love it. I think it's exceptional. I think it's interesting. So the guy who made it, Tony Gilroy, wrote and directed it. It's his first movie he ever directed. He'd been a longtime screenwriter, very successful. And he's only made a handful of other movies. They're not nearly as good. And now he's like doing you know Marvel and Star Wars stuff. Has he, has he reached that midlife level where he's not really going to go anywhere and he's just catching no, a paycheck? <laughs> no, he's, but he's been there. But I, it's clearly the movie he wanted to make for a long time. I don't think that justifies it being good. Um, but I think it's the thing he has poured a ton of energy into. I think the cinematography and direction are great. Like there's just great subtle shots. The shot that I think the last hero shot where Michael Clayton walks away and they're tracking him going through that top floor of the, the Hilton is great. And there's little flourishes like you see cops coming toward him. You think, oh, he's going to get in trouble. Don Jeffries is going to have him thrown out. But actually, the cops are there to get Don Jeffries. I just think every little element of it is really thought through and clever. And it, I find it to be like a really riveting movie that, you know, has violence and, and intrigue in it, but is fundamentally about a law firm merger and a class action lawsuit. <laughs> it does make class action lawsuits interesting and watchable and gripping, which is no mean feat. Yeah. And, you know, it may be a deeply flawed movie in terms of it, it appeals to middle-aged dudes like myself and a few other people, but we'll see. Anna, has Peter changed your mind at all? No, I just feel like I'm being mean. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I mean, look, I, it may, maybe... Not mean, not mean at all. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I'll be perfectly honest. This is not my type of film. There's a reason that I, the first time I saw this film was two days ago. These are the types of films that when I watch them, I, I always kind of feel like, I know, kind of know what's going to happen. It's just... It wasn't made for me, and there wasn't a lot that I really like here, but I understand that you did, and that's that's no problem with that. But okay, so what, putting aside whether you liked it, do you think it's a good movie, or do you think it's a bad movie? I honestly don't think it's a good movie, and I'm sorry. I feel like I'm just like laying on here, but I, I, <laughs> I thought that a lot of the cinematography was the type of stuff you see in every one of those films like that. Like, they're all shot exactly the same way. And there was also this period in like the 2000s where they loved to do this, like, this is what happened before. And then later we'll show you what, why all these things mattered so you can feel smart. That's something they do. I thought the dialogue was really overdone most of the time. The like 
Shiva goddess of death stuff. I was like, oh, come on. Like, I, I, I didn't love that. <laughs> I thought most of the performances, honestly, outside of Tilda Swinton were so just like overdone. I, I get like, you know, George Clooney's doing his George Clooney thing and that's fine. He's good at doing that, but I didn't particularly like that. I thought this soundtrack was pretty standard. This just seemed to me like the type of film that is made to try to win an Oscar. It was nominated for a lot of Oscars, but yeah. If I'm honest. I think Tilda Swinton won one, right? She did, she, yes. She, she, she did. won, right? Yes. What about the fact that they had tried to make uh, George Clooney slightly more sympathetic by like adding like an extra five pounds <laughs> uh, and a little <laughs> bit of like a little bit of like shadow Didn't under work. his eyes Didn't to show work. you that he's, yeah, I love it. I love that he's he's supposed to be an everyman sort of schlump, uh, but he's George Clooney. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very it's very hard for George Clooney to, to do schlump. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was miscursed. Maybe they could have got an actual, maybe they could have got like Paul Giamatti to do it, you know? I actually do think it probably would have been a better film if they had had a much more everyman character, maybe. Peter, what do you think? How do you think this would have played if Paul Giamatti had, had played Michael Clayton? I would have also eaten that up because, again, I'm I'm all for uh, middle-aged white guys in distress. But no, I think it's got to have some kind of some kind of leading man here who you can get behind. And you can imagine a world where he is more successful and does have it more together. Or you could also imagine him being the hard-headed guy who's making it difficult for himself. And there were paths for him to take that he chose not to. And it's he's brought this on himself. I guess, actually, as you say that, I would say the one thing that this film also does is this idea that appearances aren't what they appear to be. In this early scenes, you're looking at this building. And it looks very silent. It's at night. And then all of a sudden, you see all this like chaos that's happening underneath it. And again, the Tilda Swinton character is very mannered and artificial. And similarly, they frequently say with the George Clooney character, you're like, you don't have $75,000. Like he's driving this really nice car. He's George Clooney. So I guess I could see maybe that was kind of what they were trying to get at. Yeah. I can't imagine what possessed them to cast... Tilda Swinton is someone mad and artificial. So, like, you know, casting against type. <laughs> I, when I first saw the movie, which was also in the theater in Manhattan, I couldn't get over the whole, you know, the basic points about like discovery and stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't understand <laughs> why this movie didn't make any sense. And now that I realize that it wasn't actually about like legal discovery and it was actually about, middle-aged ennui and white-collar jobs. I'm like, it probably does a slightly better job of doing that. And I, I guess I'm slightly more susceptible to the poetry of Michael Clayton inadvertently saving his own life by going up to whisper to a horse. We didn't even get to the horses. Yes, you can. You can Why aren't the they in a pen? It's, it's very, Why are they just running around? <laughs> you know, I... I have seen horses uh, when I drive around, occasionally not in a pen, but yes, they, they, it was lucky that he stopped and looked at the horses instead of getting car bombed. You know, again, like I love all the 70s conspiracy movies that this is clearly, you know, a love letter to, including like Three Days of the Condor, which Cindy Pollack directed and, and a bunch of those movies. And those are all, you know, full of flaws. The, the idea is you're supposed to still, you know, and if you watch, I recently rewatched Three Days of the Condor and the way Robert Redford treats, uh, is it Faye Dunaway? Whoever the, the, the female, it treats her terribly in that. You know, they're, they're all, it's Warren Beatty and the Parallax. You know, there's all these beautiful men who are being put upon by the system and trying to find their way out and they often don't make it out. And this is one of those movies and, and I like all those movies. And the other thing that all of those movies have in common is they have very long seemingly entirely gratuitous shots of our hero 
driving down the road in a nice car on his own. And you see it in, you know, it starts in the 70s, maybe it starts in the 60s, but then it just goes all the way through. And it seems to be compulsory. And I I know that film directors put a lot of effort into really crafting their shots of the hero driving down the road in a car. And it's the one thing, I've only just realized this, which is like this trope that people care about. And I always treated those scenes as like, I was just like, that's my opportunity to get up and make a cup of tea. You know, it's like, there's, there's nothing <laughs> happening here. What the, why am I even watching this? But the more I realize how sort of central these things are to the movie, I was just reading this thing about how in the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like half of the budget went on a scene of Brad Pitt driving down the road in a car. And I'm like, these are clearly important. So I think I'm just going to end, since you're such a connoisseur of these movies, Peter, by asking you to explain to me what is the function of the driving down the road in a car scene? Well, I think if you're Quentin Tarantino, that's the, it is the whole movie. And, and I probably did get up at that point and <laughs> use the bathroom. The car in this case is just a symbol of his success. And as Anna pointed out, it also shows you how shallow that success is. It's not his car. It's a leased car that the company owns. He doesn't own his nice car. And it's also it tries to kill him at one point. Also, there wouldn't be like a Garmin in this car uh, if this was made today. But they'd have to figure out some other way to blow him up. I think it's that simple. Plus, good-looking people and good-looking cars. Did they try to blow him up through the inbuilt GPS? Was that the the mechanism? Yes, they well, should. Well, that's why it doesn't the work. Beginning right? of the movie. Yeah, he's, he's slapping the navigation system because it's not working because the guy didn't have time to fully install it. And, and one of the things I will say, especially in this film, like he's always driving in this film, even more than in some of those other films. I think like, and I don't know if it's supposed to be this sense of like, he doesn't really have a home or he doesn't know who he is. So he's constantly on the move or something. But it kind of jumped out at me maybe a little bit because this is supposed to be, a you know, as we said, it's, in a lot of ways, it is a good New York movie. In depictions, yeah, but, but like he drives, he's always Manhattan. driving he's, himself in a car. Yeah, yes, <laughs> he's driving his kid around the meatpacking district. There are not shots of him struggling to, to <laughs> parallel park <laughs> or picking up tickets that he gets over and over from double parking in Tribeca. He's driving down, I think it's Greenwich Street or something, and he sees Don Wilkinson like walking down the street. He he just parks. <laughs> where this magic parking spot just appears and he parks in the parking spot and runs down to to grab his former colleague with child. an armful of, of baguettes. baguettes. <laughs> that I actually liked. The armful of baguettes I found like was an oddly interesting touch. I mean, once you've bought one baguette, you know, when you're that rich, he was a successful lawyer. He's probably making what, like a million bucks, something like that. Can afford a lot of bread. The guy's got a lot of dough. <laughs> Very good. It was a long walk to get to there. We had to get there in the end. Peter Kafka, thank you for coming on Slate Money to talk about this movie, which you love and you're going to continue to watch on a regular basis for the rest of your life. This movie, you know, I was shocked that I actually had to pay to rent this movie because it is always normally on Netflix or Amazon or HBO. And you managed to schedule this in some sort of weird interregnum where I had to pay for it. But <laughs> But yeah, I, I probably watch it at least once a year because it's always streaming somewhere. Anna, I apologize for inflicting Michael Clayton on you. <laughs> no, no. Thank you for listening to Slate Money Goes to the Movies. We will be back next week with 9 to 5 and Louise Rose. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.